I'm going to uh, turn in our Bibles to Philippians uh, chapter 2, Paul's uh, letter to the church at Philippi. It's page number 1804, if you have a pew Bible, 1804. I'm going to read from verse 12 just down to verse 18. This is the word of the living God. It's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's infallible. It's uh, God's word to us. We read from verse 12 of chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not always in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and depraved or perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am poured, being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. I want you to turn again in the Word of God to Second uh, Timothy chapter 4 as we continue our study of Paul's uh, second letter to Timothy. Second Timothy 4, it's uh, page number uh, 1827 if you have a, uh, a pew Bible. We'll pick up where we left off um, last week at verse 6. I'll read through to the end of the chapter. Remember, this is uh, Paul's swan song. He's in prison. Um, He will be executed. So um, he's aware that his days are numbered. But um, that is breaking at verse 6. Paul writes, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. When you come, the uh, when you come, the, bring the books and especially the par- parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. May the Lord repray, repay him for uh, him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. 
But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisophorus. Erastus dead in Corinth and Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Prudence, Linnaeus, Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Yes, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And as we come to this uh, portion of the scripture tonight, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to concentrate on all that is said and done. Thank you for the blessings already received today uh, with the baptismal service. Continue to pray that you would bless Reuben. And as we particularly look at this uh, passage tonight and the importance of uh, pouring out your life for Christ, uh, something that uh, we all need to hear. But uh, for this uh, young uh, soldier in the faith, this uh, young saint, we pray, Lord, that you would help him to uh, pour his life out for Christ, to the glory of Christ, and to shine for you. Uh, amidst the darkness that we were reading about there from that passage in Philippians. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us this evening to the glory of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. 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 Well, friends, I didn't uh, plan it this way, but certainly in the providence of God, tonight's sermon is almost a continuation of this morning's sermon. Just let me draw your attention to uh, just the one verse that we'll be looking at this evening, and that is uh, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. And uh, you will notice there that um, that is in the present tense. Now, next week, God willing, we will look at verse 7, and that's in the past tense, and then the week after that, God willing, if we are spared, verse 8 uh, will be our text, and we will, uh, you'll see there that that is in the future tense. And um, I suppose that probably then when we get to uh, verse 9, uh, we'll cover verses 9 to 22, probably over two or three weeks, but uh, anticipate conclusion. Uh, Concluding our study of Second Timothy probably around the middle of March. So for this evening, in coming to this section that begins at verse 6, we have the explanation for the urgency that runs in Paul's exhortations throughout the entire four chapters of this, his final letter. And as you read through Second uh, Timothy, you realize that he has been urging upon Timothy the necessity of him being committed to sound words, the sound words of the gospel. That is uh, chapter 1, verse 13. He urges Timothy to guard the good things which were committed to him. That's chapter 1, verse 14. And he urges Timothy to uh, identify those 
who are straying from the truth so that he will avoid uh, doing the same. And that is uh, chapter 2, verses 17 to 19. You find that also if you take time to read the first epistle to Timothy, um, Paul also urges him to identify, uh, to identify those who have made shipwreck of their faith so that he won't become a shipwreck. That's First Timothy uh, 1, verses 19-29. He urges him also to make sure that he doesn't just take care of himself physically. Obviously, physical fitness does have a certain value, but spiritual fitness is essential for all of this life and for the life to come. That's uh, uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse, verse 8. And all of that, the, the underpinning of all of that is here in verse 6 of uh, chapter 4, the second epistle. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering for the time of my departure is at hand. In the first uh, five verses of the chapter, as we saw last week, he was giving a charge to Timothy. And then in verse 6, he explains why this is so vitally important. And friends, there is nothing like the prospect of death to clarify the issues of life. Anyone who's been given a grim diagnosis concerning their health, that maybe they've only got months to live or whatever, well, the, the mind will immediately start to think uh, about questions that they hadn't have been thinking about before. You see, it's death that clarifies the issues of life. Samuel Johnson, who was a bit of a wit in his day, put it this way. He said, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. And John Ashworth, I think his books on the bookshelf there, maybe some folks have it. But John Ashworth in his little book on amazing conversions uh, talks about prisoners in Manchester, prison that he was talking to, who had been sentenced to death. And um, the shortness of their life focused their, uh, their minds on eternal things. Some of those prisoners, as he shares with us in his book, uh, made uh, professions of faith and went to their death knowing that their sins were forgiven and that Jesus Christ was their saviour. So, as I say, if you're anticipating the hangman's noose and you have uh, ten days or less left, you're not going to waste those days on trivialities or what's irrelevant. No, it, it really focuses your attention. And what has happened to Paul is that he finds himself in jail under uh, execution and his attention is absolutely focused. It's imperative, he says, that the gospel be placed safely into the hands of those whom he leaves behind and particularly here, obviously, the person of young Timothy. Now, and what is an intensely personal paragraph? Uh, there are 25 personal pronouns 
in the space of 13 verses. I, me, my, come again and again and again. It's intensely personal. Paul is urging Timothy in light of the fact that he, Paul, has done what is necessary in the time period granted or allotted to him. And it's now vital that Timothy does what is necessary in the time remaining uh, for himself. Uh, Timothy, you make sure as you live out your days, you're following my example. That's basically what Paul is saying to this young pastor. So uh, we'll divide the verse into two. In the first half of verse six, Paul uses a metaphor to highlight the process which he is going through. And then he uses a second metaphor in the second part of the verse to give us an understanding of the prospect that he faces. So first of all, the process that he identifies. Verse 6, the first part, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. What in the world does that mean? When was the last time anybody said to you, how are you feeling today? You go into work on Monday morning, how are you feeling? And you turned around and you said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. When was the last time any of you said anything like that? Not recently. And you'd get a strange look, wouldn't you? But it's not how the situation would have been in the first century. Um, you know, this terminology that Paul uses, and being poured out as a, a drink offering. It wouldn't have been difficult for the people of the first century, first century Ephesus, uh, to, to understand and to grasp what Paul is talking about. Uh, wouldn't have been difficult for the Latin Romans to understand what Paul was talking about, or for the Jews, for that matter. So in the Greco-Roman world, as well as the Jewish world, they would have understood what Paul is talking about here. It was a figure of speech that they understood. So, you know, from the Jewish perspective, when you read the Old Testament, you discover that Moses gives instruction to the people of God ensuring that in the sacrifices that God has established that there would not only be grain offerings and honorable animal offerings but there would also be offerings of wine and oil and when that oil or that wine was poured out either as a primary expression or as a complementary expression, it was simply a picture. It was an illustration of a life being poured out. So they pour this out. It would have been perhaps relatively expensive, uh, oil or wine, and it would have had significance. In the pouring out of the oil or the wine, they were saying, 
as this oil or this wine is poured out, so may our lives be poured out to you, gracious God. I obviously, if it was water, water is equally precious, isn't it? And they were saying the same. May, may our lives be poured out to you. It's symbolism. It's a, it's a picture. And when you think about the symbols, you realize what a wonderful picture it is. Just as an animal sacrifice was complemented by the pouring out of wine, so if you like the life of Paul, uh, he's saying, my life is in the process of being poured out. Jesus made the sacrifice for sins. He is the only one who has been able to deal with the sin in my life. And now my life is not sacrificial in that sense. In comparison to what Jesus did at Calvary or in the context of what Jesus did at Calvary. But rather, when I talk about my life being poured out, it is a response to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on my behalf. Sort of help you get the picture of that and to put it across further uh, for you to give you a cross reference. If you turn to Romans 12 for a second, Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, those two verses really think get to the heart of what Paul is saying here when he says, I'm pouring my life out for God. You know, this sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for me, you know, is, as I understand it, it is, as it is so amazing, then it demands my life, as we often sing, demands my life, demands my all. Demands that I pour it out for Christ. So if you have Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Offer your bodies, pour out your bodies as a living sacrifice. Pour out your life as a living sacrifice to God. You know, as we sang there in our third hymn, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Did anybody in particular come into your mind by any chance? Silence is golden, isn't it? Yeah, go ahead, Rosie. Yeah, go to the top of the class. Rosie does not do the dishes for a month. That's right, Jim Elliot. How many fellow missionaries sang this hymn? We rest in thee, our shield and defender. Uh, before they went into the Indians. And sadly, uh, as many of you know, those young men in their late 20s, early 30s, um, you know, died as a result of uh, wanting to take the gospel to those, uh, to those Indians. And, um, you know, you look at the students from 
Edge Hill University going up and down the, the road to the university with all the future in front of them, you know, obviously God willing. And what are they going to give their lives for? You know, young Reuben, you were baptized this morning, testified to God's saving grace in your life. What are you going to give your lives for? Those students walking up and down to Edge Hill, is there anything worth giving their lives for? What are they planning and doing with their young lives? What will they pour their lives into? What causes, what uh, protests will they pour out their life to? Here you have Jim Elliot. Never planned to die at such a young age in his uh, late 20s. But he, along with the other four missionaries, poured out their lives for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he came to understand, even as a young man in his 20s, that it is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. And you see, friends, it is this metaphor, it is this picture right here in verse 6, the pouring out of wine might have been regarded as those who observed it as a complete waste. People pouring out expensive oil might have said, what a waste. And some people hearing of Jim Elliot and his friends might have thought, what a complete and total waste. In the first century, wouldn't they have looked at the Apostle Paul and his imprisonment? And would they have shaken their head and said, what a complete waste. You know, that guy could have been somebody. In Judaism, he was on the way up. He had the world at his feet. And now look at him. Stuck in that prison life over. But Paul doesn't see it in those terms, does he? He says, no, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I notice it's not active, it's passive. He doesn't say, I'm pouring my life out, which of course he is. He says, I am, I am being poured out. In other words, God is overseeing all of this. God is sovereign in all of this. What is happening in my life? God's in control of it. It's not that he pours his life out when he has a chance to determine the agenda, whether he's in jail or not. No. Uh, Whether he's in jail or out of jail. Whether he's having times of success or times of disappointment. Whether he's experiencing great encouragement or times of despondency, still his life is being poured out. God is at work in the lives of his servants all day, every day, in joy or in sorrow. Now, there is only one other occasion in the New Testament where Paul uses the same metaphor. And that's why we read from uh, Philippians chapter 2 earlier. So if you read, uh, if you flick back to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment, you'll see the same metaphor again in verses 17 and 18. 
Okay, so you got Philippians 2. Look at it again, verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, it's interesting in Philippians chapter 2, that Paul sees uh, his being poured out as a drink offering as a distinct possibility. If, it's hypothetical, if I am poured out as a drink offering. But here in his final letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I am already, present tense, being poured out as a drink offering. So, What was at one point in his life, when he wrote to the Philippians, what was at one point in his life a distinct possibility is at this point in time an imminent reality. Well, that's the process. Secondly, the prospect. The the prospect is of his death. Or as he refers to it there in the second part of uh, verse 6, his departure. And once again, you're still in Philippians, that's fine. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, to stick on Philippians for a moment. He uses the same terminology in Philippians 1. His circumstances are the same when he's in writing to the Philippians. He's in prison. And he says, verse 22, I don't know whether, well, he's talking about, I don't know whether I'm going to continue to live in the flesh or not. He says in verse 22, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell. In other words, there's plenty for me still to do. I can still teach the word of God. I can still encourage the faithful. I can still go on a missionary journey and plant uh, gospel churches. So if I stay in the flesh, if I continue in my body, then, yeah, it will be just fine because I'll continue the work yet. And here's an interesting turn of phrase. What shall I choose? I cannot tell. He, He cannot choose, can he? And Paul knows that he can't choose. If God is sovereign over the affairs of life and death. But it's an interesting phrase that the Holy Spirit moves him to uh, record here. And in verses 23 and 24, Philippians 1, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Have you ever felt hard-pressed? Between living and dying. Now I'm not obviously going to uh, go off on a tangent. And you know sit in Philippians chapter 1 and 2 for a while. But uh, just notice that the cross reference is vitally important. In understanding what Paul is doing here. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, and indeed following. Because he doesn't know the exact 
time of his departure, does he? He says, the time of my departure is at hand. But as you read down through the text, you realize that he's not saying it's going to happen tonight. Because he clearly thinks that he's going to make it through the winter, doesn't he? That's why he asks for the cloak, for the parchments, and for the books to be brought in verse 13. And then in verse 21, he says, do your utmost to get here before winter. In verse 11, he says, get Mark and bring him with you. So the sense of the imminence of his death is not something that causes him to say, well, I'm just going to lie back here and wait until it happens. No, there are still books to be read. There are still letters to be written. There are still conversations to be had. There are still journeys to continue. But friends, it's this notion of a departure that we need to, uh, to grapple with and get our heads around. Uh, the word is very important. It's the word analusis. And it uh, has... Um, well, it has as its idea. It would be used, for example, in the unyoking of oxen. Now, we live in a mechanical age, but obviously some cultures still do it the old way. You know, the likes of the Amish in America. And uh, they use those beasts of burden, you know, for uh, plowing, etc., and the idea of this word is that the farmer, at the end of the day, finally relieves those beasts of burden, uh, you know, from walking in the furrows all day by taking the yoke off them, easing the burden. And Paul says there's a sense in which my death will be just like that. The Lord will take the burden from my neck and lay it down. It's the same word that is used for weighing an anchor, pulling it up and heading into a harbor of rest. We rest in thee, our shield and our defender. It's the same word that would be used for the collapsing, the taking down of a tent and heading for your permanent dwelling. Now, Paul is very, very clear. The reason he's able to speak so straightforwardly about this is because of what he has said in Philippians chapter 1. For me to depart is to be with Christ, which is far better. So for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to die is to be with Christ. No time lag, no interim uh, Fact, uh, facility, no waiting room, no uh, soul sleeping. I will depart, he says, and be with Christ, which is going to be far, far better. Because right now, at this point in writing, obviously he has a knowledge of Christ. He had seen Christ on the Damascus road, but he has no personal acquaintance with him. But when he departs this life, goes into the next life, he has that personal acquaintance 
with his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was ahead of him. And one day he was going to enjoy that. Now just let's notice in contrast to the contemporary fuse of death. There is no foolishness or panic on Paul's part. Paul's, uh, you know, when he addresses this issue, he's not seeking to avoid it. There's no sense that he is somehow or another confused by its possibility. You know, how fastly different that is from our culture. You know, think about the thousands of pounds that are spent essentially attempting to make it look as though death has not actually happened. You know, morticians, you know, I don't know how much they get paid, but they must get paid a packet, like, you know, um, and they do a great job, you have to admit, you know, making the dead look so well, hey. You know, I don't... See, back in Northern Ireland, you know, they still have open caskets at the home, etc. You know, the funeral's a lot quicker than it is over here. And it's the comments people make, you know. <laughs> say, oh, doesn't she look well? You're thinking, but she's dead. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's the job of the mortician, isn't it? You know, they, they, do, they do a cracking job, and not only do they try to make it look like, you know, death hasn't happened. We are influenced by an Eastern preoccupation with notions of reincarnation. And as a result of people never really wrestling with the reality of death itself, they're all over the place when it comes to the issue of death and dying. A guy called Joe uh, Quinnan, he's an American author, satirist, journalist, columnist, critic. He wrote a book published in 2001 called Balsamic Dreams, a short but self-important history of the baby, baby boomer generation. Now, that, that's my generation. And he writes about baby boomers and their characteristics. And one of the things he addresses in the book is their approach to death. And he says, because baby boomers are all over the place, uh, philosophy-wise, their funeral services are really confusing. And he points out that because of all these different notions of death, uh, when you attend the funeral service of a baby boomer, um, you know, one who's, uh, you know, just died from this generation. Uh, somebody really who hasn't had much of a clue, uh, really through, the, through their life, much of an idea when it comes to living and dying. The one notion, he says, counteracts the other notion in a way that is phenomenally confusing. This is what he says. He says, because we live... Uh, because we believe in nothing, we end up acting that we believe in everything. And he says, I often come away from the funeral of a service of a friend, more confused and saddened than when I went in. Because first I'm told that my friend is just another form of energy. And then I'm told, no, he's looking down on us from above. And then, no, that's not right. He's gone to a far better place. 
But then I'm told that's not right because his spirit is breathing in the daffodils just outside the window. And we can identify with that, can't we? You know, like we've all been there. We've all been at those type of funeral services. And it's not uncommon for someone to quote the poem which begins, death is nothing at all. I've only slipped into the room next door. I am I and you and you and you and you are you. That's a standard fare, along with all, their, all the other notions, you know, that are thrown into the mix, even among uh, Christians. Like, do you ever listen to some of the comments by professing believers just prior to the, you know, the funeral sort of refreshments? You know, Uncle Jack will be enjoying a great meal right now. Or uh, Aunt Sally's probably dancing. You know how she loved her dancing. And she's probably having a real knees up. We we project the earthly and the carnal into the eternal. My friends, we don't know what's entailed in the intermediate state. Okay, will you be able to eat without a body? As Paul says, obviously, I'm absent from the body, present with the Lord. When we have funeral services, the body's in the casket. It's either going to go into the ground or it's going to go to crematorium. But the soul is with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, And what will that be like? The Bible doesn't say a lot about the intermediate state. What happens between... You know, the body departing and being with the Lord and the spirit going into the ground. And it being reunited again at the consummation of all things. And friends, all I'm trying to do here is point out the extent of confusion that exists. The nature of humanity, the existence of who and what we are as embodied souls... The only point at which that does not happen is in the interim between death of a believer and the wrapping up of everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that experience, it's alien to what we were created to be. You know, we are created to have a body and a soul. But when we die, um, body and soul is separated. And what does that amount to? Well, we we don't know. We can't say categorically. Certainly in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be having meals. Of course we will. And Sally will probably be dancing in the new heaven and the new earth. But in between all of that, I don't think we can say categorically. Now, that aside, the devil comes as he did in the garden and he says, Now, I know that you know you're going to die. As we were saying this morning, one out of one dies. But... What you need to know is that death isn't real. You don't need to worry about it. It's not something to be bothered about. You'll be in the room next door, and you'll be the daffodils. You won't surely die. That's the lie that Satan peddles. And since people haven't got a mechanism for adjudicating on this, they're prepared to buy the satanic lie. Now, the Westminster Defines in the 16th century, when they came to terms with what the Bible teaches as they read their Bibles they said now can we make a statement concerning death that uh, death and dying that is comprehensive 
a statement that will be clear, a statement that will be helpful. And they determined, yeah, we can. Right, listen to this. This is what they wrote. After death, the bodies of men decay and return to dust. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal existence, return immediately to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, and they await the full redemption of their bodies. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, and they are kept there for judgment on the great day. Scripture recognizes no other place except these two for the souls which have been separated from their bodies. Ominously for unbelievers, and wonderfully for believers, while the human body disintegrates for a time, the human soul does not. It either abides in heaven or in hell. Now, if you ask me uh, how then may all the matter be reassembled so as to reconstitute you in Christ and a recognizable and new improved body, Uh, Well, that's the the mystery that God takes care of. But it's the very mystery of creation itself, isn't it? The return of Jesus Christ will bring shouts of joy among the saved and cries of anguish among the unsaved. And so, do you see where our culture is? The underlying notions of our culture that have destroyed the notion of our origins as made, fashioned, Intricately put together in our mother's womb. Our culture says no to that. It's not true. You're just a product of, you know, time plus matter plus chance. Therefore, you can do what you want because you're, on a, you're accountable to no one. And the Bible says that reasoning is empty and it's futile because you're accountable to God. And you will stand before God in judgment. And this is the good news, beloved. You were made by God, for God. And he loves you so much that despite the fact that you haven't lived your life for his glory, he still sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the atoning sacrifice for your sin so that we might enjoy him. That's why God created us, that we might enjoy him. He didn't create us to rob us of life, to destroy our life. He created us to have a life with him. And so, uh, we pray that each of us here tonight might enjoy the reality of what it means to know him now. And obviously to live with him in the hereafter.